Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Jonathan Watts, the Guardian's Asia Environment Correspondent. As such, Jonathan has had the chance to travel all over China in the past seven years, seeing for himself the country's growing industrial might, and the price that's being paid for it in terms of human health and environmental damage. So his new book, When a Billion Chinese Jump, is a report from the front line of climate change, informed by unrivaled knowledge of the situation on the ground. And that situation is, if not hopeless, then certainly critical. The best place to begin, I thought, was with the book's title. How had he come up with it? Uh, it comes from my first childhood encounter with the idea of apocalypse. Perhaps strangely, uh, I, I've, I've asked this to other people and they've said my first idea of you know, the world annihilation uh, came when I heard about nuclear war or disease. But for me, uh, at least as, as best as I can remember it, it was the idea of a billion Chinese jumping because as a small child growing up in a North London suburb, I struggled to grasp how big China was. And an adult explained it to me in, in roughly the following terms. He said, there's so many people in China that if all of them jumped at the same time, it would knock the world off its axis and we would go spinning into space and everyone would die. Uh, but don't worry, that will never happen. Now, that's something you can't say to a, a, a small child, especially someone like me who was a born warrior. So for quite some time after that, every night before I went to bed, I would pray and I would pray as normal. I would say, dear God, please look after my mummy and my daddy and my sister and my dog Toby. And then I would list all my friends. And then at the end, every night I would tag on and please don't let everyone in China jump at the same time. You know, it's a foolish fears of a very young child. And of course you grow out of something like that. But when I came to write this book, I remembered this childhood experience and it seemed like an appropriate title because on one side, it shows how fears of China and its size can be very irrational and, and that we, we, we kind of group everyone in China together and assume they might be doing everything at once. Uh, when after coming to China, uh, I realized just how diverse the country is and that there's an enormous amount of different things going on at different speeds. So that's part of the reason for choosing that. But the other side of it is that uh, in an environmental perspective, what is happening in China today really will uh, shape the world for better or for worse. So the, the economic jump is taking China towards the same unsustainable lifestyle that already exists in the West. And when it is multiplied by a billion or however many people get close to this lifestyle, it will have huge or it is having huge implications for all of us. And so I've tried to capture that in the book while also making it very clear, you can't really blame China for what's happening. That actually a billion people in the richer countries of the world, in Europe, in the US, in Japan, they've already made this jump. Uh, that China's now following it, pushes us further, further towards a sort of tipping point. But also behind China, there are several billion more people in countries like India and Brazil that are about to make the same jump too. So it really is a way of trying to describe how humanity has been living, a big chunk of humanity has been living beyond its means for a long time already, 
And now when the majority of us start to do that, we're all going to have to make some huge adjustments or face big trouble. So for the last several years, you've been traveling around China, really looking at the <coughs> consequences of China making that jump. And for someone who's a self-confessed born worrier, you must, have, you must have been given plenty of fuel for your worries as you traveled around. Yes, um, that's right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm an accidental environment correspondent uh, in that when I started out as a journalist in 1996 in Japan, I was covering a full gamut of stories from the economy to new technology. And in those days, I would probably write about the environment only uh, once every two or three months. Um, more recently, and particularly after moving to China in 2003, I found at first just not on purpose, uh, but I was just writing more and more environmental stories because it was such a big part of what was happening in China and shaping the economy, shaping social policy because there was protests, um, of course, affecting climate change because China had become the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. And there was a, a chance a, a couple of years ago to take a post as an environment specialist and I took it and at the same time took some time off, six months off to write this book. And it, it was a shock. I, th I think everybody has a a general sense of unease about what's happening to the environment. We read about the polar ice caps melting, etc. And we, we hear about species going into decline. But to actually concentrate on it for such an intense period of time and really just, first of all, to see it. I mean, uh, I've been very fortunate, partly self-funded for the book, but also because The Guardian has sent me all over the place. I'm a, I am able to go and see melting glaciers and I, I am able to go to forests and talk to conservation workers in national parks and things like that. So it's very much upfront uh, experience of what's going on. And then to look at the reading and there's some, it, there's some pretty grim reading out there, you know, like one book's called Notes from a Dying Planet. And there are some very gloomy experts. So there's one Chinese professor has a theory that the world is going to be engulfed in a a storm of salt and dust and we're all going to die from this. So you are looking into the abyss, as it were, all the things that could possibly go wrong. And there are a lot of them. So yes, for a born warrior and now a professional warrior, if you like, it was an emotional roller coaster, really a lot of ups and downs. Um, but, you know, there, there were definitely times when I sort of despaired for the future of humanity. But it wasn't all down. You know, there are people doing amazing things. Um, scientists who are pushing back the boundaries of renewable energy technology, environmental activists who are very bravely confronting uh, factory owners and local officials, and very benevolent, decent people at a government level too, in China and outside of China. And, and you can see that more and more people are, are becoming concerned and getting involved. So the picture's not entirely bleak. But yeah, sometimes I did think, you know, why didn't I choose a completely different subject like Hollywood Babes or uh, the 10 most beautiful parts of, 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 of the British countryside or something like that? Because, I mean, in, in fairness, you did see some pretty apocalyptic sites, didn't you? Not, not just little harbingers, but, but signs of real, real collapse and environmental stress at its most acute. Yeah, um, the, the book is written as a, as a travelogue and... Interestingly, in, um, perhaps as a result, on, on, in Amazon, it's classified in the holidays and travel section, which uh, is quite funny because if anything, 
it's a guide to all the places you don't want to go. There, there are waste dumps, there are coal mines, there are cancer villages, there are areas where people have been forced to leave because the grasslands have deteriorated or because the deserts are creeping in and sand dunes are swallowing up their homes. So some of the sites have been absolutely appalling, absolutely, uh, no doubt about it. I mean, I've seen rivers that are, have, have turned red with pollution, rivers that have turned yellow with pollution, rivers that have turned black with pollution, uh, and gone to city after city after city where there's a horrible gray haze that envelops everything and you can almost taste the pollution in the air. And it's not always like that, fortunately, otherwise you really would despair. But when you have, when you have too many of those experiences in a row, it does make you think, what are we doing? There is a moment in the book which sticks in my mind where you and your assistant are driving away from one of the most polluted cities in China and you have a bet about how many hours you will have to travel before you escape from the enveloping smog. Tell, tell me what that, what that revealed. Yes, that was uh, coming out of Linfen, uh, which is in Shanxi province in the north. It's a, it's a big centre of coal and because there's a big coal industry, there's lots of other steel and other dirty industries are attracted there. So... For, for much of the period since 1990, it has been the most polluted place in China and uh, therefore in the world. And it ha has been listed by one agency as on, in a ranking of the top 10 worst places not far after Chernobyl. You know, it, it, it's pretty horrible. It's trying to clean up. It's important to emphasize that. And it, it has been better than it was. But when we were there, we didn't really see the, the sun at all for three days and then we're coming back and so we have a bet you know once we come out of this smoggy valley you know how long is it before we'll, we'll see the sun and I think I can't remember exactly what I bet it was something like three hours and my assistant said no it'll be five hours but actually we drove out and three hours passed still grey five hours passed still grey we went to the nearest airport which was maybe six hours still grey and then we thought well we won't see it until we take off and fly above the clouds but strangely maybe because the pilot was trying to save some fuel he didn't fly very high and it was a short hop between Linfen and Beijing anyway so he didn't gain the altitude to climb above the haze so we flew through the haze all the way to Beijing and then when we landed in Beijing there's the familiar haze again to greet us so neither of us won the bet and it was probably another day before at least another day until the, 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 the smog lifted and we got to see the sun in its, uh, in its proper shape and form. I wanted to ask you about Chinese attitudes to the environment. One of the things which really sticks in my mind from the book is a folk tale that you tell early on about an, a foolish old man who wants to move a mountain. And this is a, a story which is told to, to school children. What's, what's, what, tell us a little bit about the tale and what its, what its sort of moral is for the Chinese. It's called Yu Gong Yi Shan. It's it's the the story of the foolish old man who moved the mountains, and it's I think it dates back close to two thousand years. Uh, and this story is about a an old man who who lives in a remote area, and he's infuriated that there's a big mountain outside his home that's blocking his view and also making it difficult to travel. So he decides to move the mountain and he's, he's just stone by stone moving the mountain 
And somebody sees him and says, you know, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to move the mountain. Uh, I'm not going to give up. And then eventually uh, God is so impressed at his diligence because not only does he do it, but he gets his sons and his grandsons to keep moving stone by stone the mountain away that God sends down, depends on the version, but you know, the equivalent of two angels or two sons from, from the heavens who give him a big helping hand and they shift the mountain away. So he actually succeeds in moving the mountain. This story has resonated over time as a, a symbol that mankind can do anything with enough determination and enough male offspring, effectively, to keep going after generation after generation. Mao Zedong loved this story and told this story. And for him, the mountain was, or mountains, I think it depends, sometimes there's two mountains that he moved, was imperialism and capitalism. And if you move those, we are liberated. It's sort of very much a case of liberation and, and, and the, the potential of mankind. And in a sense, it's what is happening in parts of China, that engineers are moving into the most remote places on earth, particularly Tibet and Xinjiang, and starting to take more and more minerals out of the mountain and send them off to the coast. So it's kind of come true in a way that this sense from time immemorial that you can engineer solutions to problems, you can reshape nature, mankind has that potential. And it's still very strong, and you see it in all sorts of mega projects. China has most of the world's great mega projects, from Three Gorges Dam, South North Water Diversion Program, the biggest bridges, etc., etc. You can go on for some time. But what I tried to show in the book as well is that this isn't the only way China looks at nature, and that there are there are different threats, and that sort of man-centered ordering of the world. There's one view, and it ties in in some regards with Confucianism and certainly with sort of Maoist re-engineering. But there's another view which has been very strong, and, and depending on the time in history, which is a bit more Taoist, which is mankind living in balance with nature. And there's a, there's a great old story about that as well, which is, I think, was told by Zhuangzi, which is the story of the useless tree. And in this story, this is almost like a, the other side uh, of, of Chinese belief. But in this story, uh, Zhuangzi is dozing under a gnarled, ugly-looking tree. And a, a scholar, a, a supposed wide man, or someone who thinks he's very wise, comes up and says, oh, what are you doing, wasting your time under this ugly old tree? This, this tree is useless. Uh, and Zhuangzi counters and says, well, Perhaps this is a useless tree, but then it's a very lucky useless tree because if its branches were straight, someone would want to cut it down and make it into something useful. But because it's this twisted shape, it's managed to survive and it's surviving and you may call it useless, but I'm getting shade here and I'm resting here and it does something for me. So you keep your useful trees and I will keep my useless trees. And I think that in a sense, shows this sort of deeper understanding of what nature can give you. It's not that immediate short-term utility, but something deeper and more longer-lasting and less stressed and letting nature do its own thing. So both of these views have coexisted in Chinese thought for thousands of years. 
Uh, and and I, I speculate in the book that this may be one of the reasons why Chinese civilization has lasted so long, is that it's never been one or the other. Because in one sense, this, it, this is the binary opposition between order and chaos. But you've been able to combine the two. There are stories, for example, of the you know old mandarins, and during the day when they had to be officials, they would be very Confucian and order everything and make sure the hierarchies were working. And then when they went home, in their homes, they would they would relax with a much more Taoist view. They would probably do Tai Chi or tend their gardens according to Taoist principles. So you had both of these things together. And one of the important things in the book is that values are the core. If, if, if we have problems, we need to change values. Uh, and maybe one of the things that we could learn, not just China, but the world could learn, is, is a bit more of the Taoist view. I'm not the only, we think we have to explore all, all sorts of different uh, ways of looking at nature. Uh, but certainly if in, in China, if there was a bit more emphasis on Taoism and natural wisdom, rather than man's often short-term utilitarianism, uh, then we might be better off in the long run. Values, as you say, are important. The, the other thing which it struck me as being important are political structures. And you say at one point in the book, China is neither a dictatorship nor a democracy. In fact, it's got the worst of both worlds because it doesn't have the strength of, of dictatorship to actually impose compliance. And at the same time, it doesn't have the strength of democracy in order to allow grassroots, move, grassroots movements to really have a, an influence on, on what's happening. And so it's the middle which becomes the real sort of power brokers. And that's where you get corruption and self-serving and, and, and short-termism. And that sounds like quite a, quite a recipe for disaster. Uh, absolutely. Um, the political structure and, and, and the governance problems are very tied to what happens uh, in the environment. And I, I, I wrestled with this. I mean, my, when I set out to write the book, uh, obviously this was one of the thoughts very strongly in my mind that the lack of transparency, uh, a lack of accountability would be making the whole situation so much worse because clearly uh, that has been one of the reasons why you get pollution incidents so often is that factory owners are able to ignore the rules because they're paying off local officials. And you hear that again and again and again. And this made me think that Although China is described as this authoritarian state, often when it comes to the environment, it seems to completely lack authority. I mean, the government has a lot of very good policies on paper. The legislature has passed some very enlightened environmental laws on paper. But when it comes to practice, the drive for economic growth trumps everything. And so, absolutely right, at the top, of society at the top of the power structure, you have a president, Hu Jintao, who's trained as a hydro engineer. You have a prime minister, Wen Jiabao, who's trained as a geologist. And I refer to them in the book as, as, as President Water and Premier Earth, because they, they, if anyone should know about environmental problems, it should be these two. And so I think you, you have seen an effort to try to clean up the environment, on paper at least. And this is the basis of what they call the scientific outlook on development, which is an attempt to be more sustainable. So at the top, there's an effort. At the bottom, 
there's certainly an understanding of the problems because the poorest people are the ones who are always the worst affected. They're the ones who live by the, the, the waterways that flood all the time. They're the ones who live on the edge of the deserts that are creeping closer. They're the ones who live uh, and depend on, on, on glaciers that are, that are melting and shrinking. They know the problems. Uh, they're the ones who are being affected by pollution from the factories. But it really is that band in the middle, the local party chiefs, the factory owners, they're the well-known villains, and for sure, uh, that's a problem. But the middle band includes consumers in big cities. It includes foreign investors. All of these people want more economic growth. They want to be able to have more for themselves. And they either ignore or willfully neglect the consequences, which are felt often outside of where they are, especially because many of them live in cities or nice homes or they live in air-conditioned environments, so if the climate changes, they don't feel it so much uh, as the people at the bottom or, or know about it as much as the people at the top. So this whole issue of governance is hugely, hugely important. But I did also consider uh, that given the really appalling situation we're in as far as the environment's concerned, that perhaps we need a di real dictatorship. I mean, I considered it as a theoretical question that democracies have lots of strengths, but one of the clear weaknesses when it comes to the environment of a democracy is that every four or five years, politicians must stand for re-election by promising more. And they cannot go to voters and say, vote for me, I will give you less tomorrow than you have today. That, that's just not going to happen. So they... They're, none of the politicians you see now, even in the West, really talks about sacrifice or cost-cutting. Whenever that comes up, they say, like, oh, that's just the you know, hair-shirt approach. You don't want to go there. Um, and it's, it's considered politically unrealistic, and, and at the moment it is. So I thought, well, you know, if, that, if that won't work in the West, maybe China's the place where it could work, because they don't have to stand for re-election, and maybe they can impose their will. But what I found was that in some respects having a one-party system is helpful to promote certain industries. So for investing in renewable energy, for example, this is the great success story of modern China so far, is that the government at the top level has made a decision. We will look for growth through a low-carbon economy. So China has just gone, I mean, made progress in leaps and bounds towards manufacturing solar panels, erecting wind turbines, trying to nurture an industry of so-called clean cars that run on electricity. There's, there's numerous projects to start eco-cities and eco-villages. It's coal efficiency technology is probably the best in the world, or probably might well have passed the US as the best in the world. So in this area, I think it works because they can channel large uh, sums and, and resources uh, with policy incentives to expand. But if it comes to constraints or certain things that should be controlled, then I think there are huge weaknesses and worse than a democracy because people don't buy into it. They don't feel part of it. They just feel they have to take what they can out of it. And that's where you have pollution problems. That's where you have nature reserves that just often don't work properly, they're ineffective. Um, the whole situation was best summed up by a, a wetland 
conservation activist in 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 the south of China in in Shangri-La, and uh, he'd been struggling for years and years to save the wetlands near his home. Um, it was a losing battle, and I, I say, you know, what? Why? You know, what, what's wrong? This is this is a beautiful thing. Why isn't it being protected? And he just had one, you know, one short phrase that seemed to sum up everything. He said, the, the Chinese government, it has the power to expand. The Chinese government does not have the power to constrain. And I think that that it's not a bad way of sort of summing up the governance situation now in China. Yeah, when you visit Shanghai, there's a very <coughs> strong sense that the consumerist genie is out of the bottle, and it would be a it would be a a brave government which attempted to to try to put that back in. Also, you know, as you already suggested, we in we in the West can be very self righteous in our hand wringing because I was I was struck by the fact that there are two hundred thousand Kentucky Fried Chicken employees in China. So there's clearly a very big drive to to make China replicate our, our lifestyle. So, so that the engines of consumerism seem to me to be turning very, very rapidly. Yes, uh, this is something that I wasn't really expecting. When I set out to write the book, I didn't expect to be writing a book so much about consumption. But al- that's almost my conclusion is that, well, one of the conclusions is that this is a huge problem. We, as a species, certainly not just China, but we as a species are consuming way beyond uh, our planet's means. And so we have to start thinking, how do we use what's left in a way that allows future generations something to live on? But the global economy is totally driven by consumption. And particularly now we've had an economic crash. And so the West is not consuming as it used to consume big companies more than ever before, international companies more than ever before, are looking to China to consume ever more and fill the gap, as they call it. And and so, in a sense, consumption is more of a problem than pollution because pollution is recognized as a terrible thing and we know how to fix it with money and and, and enough political will. You You can deal with it. It's been done in country after country. But consumption is not considered a problem at all. If you look at it through an environmental lens, of course, yes, terrible. If you look at it through an an economic lens, fantastic. This is exactly what we need. Every major economist in the world wants more Chinese consumption. The Chinese government wants more Chinese consumption. International businesses want more Chinese consumption. And foreign governments want more Chinese consumption because it will help address trade imbalances. So you get a situation where, yes, places like Shanghai are being, you know, Shanghai is the bridgehead for this sort of retail invasion. And all of the big brands now, you know, from like, from, from Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's to Barbie and Armani are all moving into Shanghai, using it as their bridgehead and hoping to sort of conquer China and have the you know the, the the famous billion customer market, and so you have this huge drive to encourage Chinese people to consume more, and it's a real problem addressing this subject from Britain as a British journalist, because there is without doubt an equity problem here, a big bad equity problem, in that Britain 
in, in many ways, 200 odd years ago, found this industrial model that used resources unsustainably and allowed the people who applied this model to live fantastic lives. And that has been replicated in country after country. This is the process of development. Uh, and now pretty much everyone agrees we are using the world's resources unsustainably beyond, beyond the planet's means. But how can the wealthier countries now, now say to the up and coming developing nations, sorry, we've, we've sort of, we've had this feast for 200 years. There's few scraps left uh, and we're just going to share those out amongst us. Uh, so you have, you have this, this terrible ethical dilemma. Ultimately, it's a question of, well, if China is allowed to burn the same amount of coal to emit as much, as many emissions into the air uh, as, as Britain and other countries have done for hundreds of years, uh, and, and if it can, you know, eats at the same level, drives cars at the same level, etc., etc., that would be perfectly fair. It would probably also be utterly calamitous. So clearly there needs to be some compensation, some recompense, and some persuasion. And I think that the only possible way to do it is by just proving the current model is utterly bankrupt and useless. Uh, and that it isn't something to aspire to. It is ultimately going to be a road to ruin. And that there, 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 there are better values out there. And maybe countries like China or India or Brazil can be the places that do not rely on people having two cars and do not rely on people having ever bigger homes, uh, but find something that has a longer lifespan that's better for future generations. So that, that would be the, the sort of the hope of where Chinese consumption is, might go. But frankly, at the moment, it's completely going in the consumerist direction. Not yet at an American or even a European level, but there's a couple of turning points in recent years. In 2000, roughly in 2008, it's estimated that that's the point where the average person in China for the first time started living lives beyond the planet's means. So in other words, in 2007, if everybody on earth had lived like the average Mr. and Mrs. Wang, we would live within the planet's means. Whereas at that point, if we'd all lived like Mr. and Mrs. Smith in America, we would need four planets to, to give us all the things we need. But China is moving up towards the US. It's still a way to go. But in some places, it's, it, it's caught up very quickly. Shanghai has, in terms of per capita carbon emissions, Shanghai has overtaken New York and Paris and London. Now, you know, there, there are problems with comparisons like this in that that's partly because Shanghai has a huge steelworks and a big car company and it's you know, it's not that simple. But the trend is clearly in that direction. And it, it, it's estimated that even in per capita terms, China's emissions will be higher than, the, than Britain's within the next 10 years or so. And just very recently, you had a report by the International Energy Agency that said for the first time ever, the United States is no longer the world's biggest user of energy. China has overtaken it as you know, the country that has the most power, uses the most power. And this, this is consumer power. It will also be geostrategic power. Um, and the trajectory is very clear that this is the way things are going to go.
at one point on your travels, you scribble in your notebook that in the 19th century, <sighs> the British taught the world to produce, and the 20th century, the Americans taught the world to consume, and in the 21st century, the Chinese, if we are to survive, are going to have to teach the world to sustain. And you've already talked about the, the, the rampant consumerism, but I, I wanted to finally to ask you about measures which have been taken for renewable energy and conservation. How, how much of that do you think is lip service or, or perhaps not that, but too little, too late? And how much do you think there is actual genuine progress being made that will make a, a material difference? China has, I think, the world's worst environment crisis. I think it's worse than most people in the outside world realize. But because the situation is so bad, I think they are the country that actually has to change. This is, this is where the global economic model of growth runs into ecological walls. And that means, much as they probably like to ignore it, and outsource it as previously developed countries have ignored a lot of it or outsourced it. Uh, in China, that's extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible. So I think the government is sincere in wanting to do something about this, not for altruism, not for to save the world, but to save China and to find a way to keep growing. So I think in that sense, they are utterly committed to promoting low carbon growth in the future. And that's why they're putting so such large sums of money in solar and wind and geothermal and it, trying to build eco cities. Now, clearly at the same time, there is a lot of greenwashing going on of various projects in China, as there is in other countries. Everyone is suddenly claiming to be green. And, and so it, you, know, you, ha you really have to pick apart which projects are genuinely aiming to do something new and different and important, and which projects are just using an eco-label to try and sell what they've always been selling, whether it's real estate or cars or, or whatever else. So I, th I think there's a, a lot of testing and checking needs to go on. The problem, I think, is that although there is this very strong awareness of the environmental problems China faces and that it is proving an economic factor, an economic problem. I mean, to take, I mean, pollution, uh, according to the World Bank, pollution uh, cost China 5.7% of its GDP in 2007. If you subtract that from China's growth, that doesn't leave very much. So, uh, you know, that, that that's another reason why they're absolutely uh, determined to do something. But I think the structures they have in place the governance structures they have in place, the incentive structures they have in place, the business structures they have in place, are still kind of set towards the direction of economic growth and political control and stability, rather than grassroots radical change. Uh, and, and I think that will, pro that will probably hold them back and encourage them to push more on consumption and more on developing local economies as fast as you can even as there is, at the top level at least, an effort to focus less on quantity and more on quality. So I think the short answer to, to what you've asked me is China is sincere, but it's being driven by a momentum that will carry it in the wrong direction for a long time yet. 
and will probably require some very fundamental changes or some kind of major crisis to really make the shift that's needed. But in a way, you can probably say the same thing about the whole world. Jonathan Watts. When a Billion Chinese Jump is out now in paperback. You can find out more about the book by visiting the Faber website at faber.co.uk. You'll also find a full podcast archive there featuring about 50 author interviews. I hope you'll join me again soon for another Faber podcast. And until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.